Think we're ready. Okay. I started out my life um, as a follower. I, uh, I've made it clear in some of my personal stories lately that I was usually clueless about what was going on around me. And so whatever everybody else was doing, I just kind of did. I just followed everybody else, which didn't generally work out well for me. Um, when I was in first grade, I was arrested three times. Um, I had this friend that lived across the alley from me named Andy, and he was a troublemaker. And whatever Andy did, I did. Like, yeah, let's do it. And uh, so one day um, he wanted to make a campfire in August in the middle of the dry grass in the middle of these two big um, vacant lots in our neighborhood. And so we stomped out the grass and made a, a fire out of grass, and we lit it. And as the fire trucks, I think it was four or five fire trucks, were putting out, were spraying down the houses next door that had just barely started to catch fire, they drove us to the police station for arson. And um, the second time, Andy's older brother uh, wanted to see if um, we could use our slingshots to break the windows out of this house down the street that had caught on fire. And so um, by the time the dust, we we eventually crossed the police tape to go in and because uh, we weren't very good with our slingshots. And uh, by the time the dust of our vandalism settled, um, we were driven down to the police station for tampering with an ongoing police investigation. Not long after, Andy and I were playing carpenters, um, fully dressed out in our work belts, carrying our dad's tools. And uh, I kneeled down to tie my shoe, and uh, Andy used his hammer to start breaking out the tiles on this H&R block building in a pattern that was going to spell his name. Um, cause we were so young, that's all he knew how to spell. And these two old people just picked us up and made a citizen's arrest and drove us down to the police station. <laughs> so my parents soon thereafter moved to get away from Andy um, because I swear I was just doing what he wanted to do. Um, then in my early teen years, it didn't get much better. I'd run around with a bunch, bunch of my friends and most of them had always had some form of destruction on their mind and um, so I'd go along because that's what I did. And, and one night we were out making messes and, and we stopped in this field um, that ran along a pretty major county road in Leavenworth. And, and uh, we were making these tightly packed mud balls and throwing them at the road, trying to hit cars. Um, and most of us didn't have enough arm, myself included, to reach the road. So it was all kind of for show. But Cortez Green, a friend of mine, um, very athletic, lets out this colossal grunt rah, and throws a mud ball. And, and, uh, and one in a million shot, there's this explosive boom as he hits this car going by. And uh, we all freeze like, oh, my gosh, you actually hit one. And it took about a half a second for this spotlight to nail us on the side of the road. Cortez had hit a police car. And I mean, that guy was good with the spotlight because he just, boom, and we're standing there frozen against the edge of these woods. So we take off into the woods like there were hound dogs after us, and, and we tromp through the creek, and we get back to Mike's house, a friend of mine that we were staying with that night, and his brother was a, a volunteer firefighter, and he had a police scanner. And as we're standing in the entryway covered in mud, we, we hear this, like, be on the lookout for five teenage boys who were throwing mud at cars on DeSoto Road, and we're standing there looking at Mike's brother, covered in five of us, covered in mud. And uh, so we got in trouble that time. Then later in my teen years, one of the other football players used to love pulling pranks on this one girl who drove this little tiny car. And, uh, and so we would all get around and pick her car up and put it on the sidewalk. And then and where she liked to park, she had to drive like clear down the school to get to the little handicap park to pull off of the sidewalk. And so it was just the height of hilarity to watch her driving down the sidewalk so she could get her car 
off of the sidewalk. And so we uh, one day we're doing that, and we get to waddle in a little fast, and somebody drops their end, and we drop that sucker right on the front driver's side tire and just roll that whole wheel and everything up underneath the car. And uh, And that was when I decided to stop being a follower because I was the one that was always paying for the damages. And so I realized... When we were starting fires and defacing property, Andy never got in trouble. His parents didn't care. I was the one that always got in trouble. And when we were throwing mud balls and hit the police car, I was the only one who had to go confess to the police and say that was us that did it. And I didn't rat out any of my friends. None of their parents made them do that. And I was the one who paid for this. Nobody else pitched in to pay for the damages to this car. And I figured out it was much, much cheaper to be a leader and not a follower. And so... Leadership is actually what we're talking about today, and I've titled my message hashtag leadership. We've been doing an at Jesus series where if Jesus had an Instagram, what stories would he post? What are his big stories that he would post on Instagram? And uh, this this week it's hashtag leadership. This hashtag is used 15 million times on Instagram, indicating that our uh, culture has a bit of a fixation on leadership. Um, we've done uh, this year for Lent. We're almost done with Lent. We're almost out of the Lent series. Um, our next series after Lent, we're going to uh, we're titling L'chaim to life. And we're going to talk about what it actually means to live in a resurrection. We're done with Lent. We're done with the hard stuff. We're going to celebrate a little bit and talk about what it means to live in a resurrected life and what that looks like. And so that's next. But we're still in Lent. One more week. Um, one more week in our At Jesus series. We covered the beginning of Jesus' ministry, hashtag beginnings. We looked at him on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, hashtag no filter. We talked about Jesus turning water into wine and then cleansing the temple, hashtag don't hold back. We talked about how Jesus is the very clearest and fullest and most open and authentic revelation of the nature and character of God the Father in hashtag twins. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Hashtag twins. And then last week we looked at John's representation of the upside down kingdom in hashtag goals. Jesus sees this kind of monumental puzzle piece drop into place in his life. And he realizes he's about to suffer greatly. And when contemplating um, that, that, uh, that situation, he, he clearly states um, that this is exactly why he came. This is his hashtag goal. And as Jesus articulates the reality, um, we find this amazing kingdom dynamic that if we truly want to live, truly live, we must die. We find life by giving up our lives um, for others. So welcome to the upside down kingdom. Um, And today we're going to be deep in the upside down kingdom again as we look at uh, what is historically considered Jesus' most overt uh, public uh, moment of recognition as the true leader of God's people. Um, this is when Jesus kind of reveals his hashtag leadership. Um, this is Palm Sunday, and it marks the beginning of Holy Week, Jesus' final week before his crucifixion. And boy, oh boy, am I going to mess with some of you today. Um, this has been a fun and paradigm-shifting study, I have to tell you. I went pretty deep for this one, and, uh, and I can't wait to share what I found. So, um, let's dive into the text. The lectionary gave us Mark's account this year, so we'll be in Mark um, 11, verses 1 to 11. 
As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them ahead. Go into the villages over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied up by the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then, he, then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, uh, and, and the people all around were shouting, Praise God, blessing on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heavens. Uh, so Jesus came into Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a scene that we are very familiar with. Um, who grew up waving palm branches on Palm Sunday? Everybody a little bit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Judy has a palm uh, water bottle, so she's going to hit Dale in the head with that. Um, waving her palm branch water bottle. Um, this is a loaded passage, and we're going to have to unpack a few things and maybe even deconstruct some stuff um, before we can figure out what Mark has to say to us today um, from this story. So bear with me. What actually happens here is kind of unique um, because it is so intentional. Um, through the Gospels, there are many um, times that Jesus fulfills a prophecy that he had no control over, like where he's born and what the soldiers do to him after they arrest him. Like Those are fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had no control over fulfilling. They just happened to him. But there are others that Jesus very, very intentionally fulfills. And this is one of those stories. Jesus actually plans ahead to fulfill Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. Some of the other gospel writers actually quote this passage when they tell this same story. And this is really fascinating um, because this passage isn't even really about this passage. This, this passage in Zechariah is actually looking back to another passage. In the Talmudic era Midrash, which if you're Jewish, that is after the Old Testament, the rabbis wrote commentaries about the New Testament. Um, and they would, they would write about each verse of the New Testament. So the, the, the Talmud would have been the commentaries that Jesus grew up studying. He would have grown up studying what other rabbis have said about the Old Testament. And in the Talmud, um, if you want to look it up, it's uh, Bereshith Rabbah 98.8. So get out your Talmud and no, the Talmud is like a library of, of different things. Um, the rabbis, almost all the rabbis in the Talmud said that Zechariah wrote chapter nine with an eye to Genesis 49. They said he was actually writing about a prophecy in Genesis 49. So we're going to bounce back and then bounce back again. So stick with me. So in Genesis 49, Jacob is blessing his children, his sons before he dies. Um, uh, and he gets to Judah, who is the progenitor to David, um, who is ultimately the progenitor to Jesus. So he's talking about the tribe that Jesus will come from um, when he gets to Judah. And he says this about Judah. 
He says, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating his prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom the nations will honor. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. And so the rabbis believe that Jacob prophesied this eternal rulership to Judah's descendants. But with this weird symbolism of donkeys, which is a symbol of peace and, and, uh, and humility, and wine, a symbol of joy and peace and celebration. So there's this weird mix of rulership, which usually means blood and power and strength, mixed with um, these, these symbols of peace and humility and, and joy and celebration. And then with all this... These kind of conflicting symbols in his head, um, Zechariah prophesies what he thinks these images might look like. So he, he knows these passages when he writes his prophecy, and he's trying to imagine what these images might look like in this future ruler. And he says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding a donkey's colt. So he's talking about Genesis 49, this prophecy about Judah's heir, which he then extends as he as he imagines kind of the real what real leadership that might include donkeys and wine and these kind of images might look like. In the very next verse, in verse 10, he says, um, I, re- I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea, from the Euphrates to the ends of the earth. So this is Zechariah. In fact, many of the rabbis believe that this prophecy uh, in, in, uh, in Genesis 49 that Jacob gives to Judah also feeds the writing of Psalms 118, which is where we get this phrase, blessed is you, comes in the name of the Lord. Um, because Jacob says this, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the, the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. Um, there's not universal agreement in the Talmud for this one, but a great many rabbis believe that whoever wrote Psalms 118 was also talking about Genesis 49. Blessed is he who comes. The one who comes riding in a donkey. Blessed is he who comes. So what's amazing about this morning's passage in Mark is that Jesus isn't just kind of choosing this random prophecy to fulfill. He's actually stepping into this deep, river of prophetic thought and imagination that stretches all the way back to Jacob. He's actually moving into this messianic stream that goes a long, long way back. And at the core of this prophetic idea, this prophetic stream that many writers along the way have picked up on and tried to enunciate is this idea that messianic rulership will look different. It will be different. It's not going to be like every other kind of leadership that we grow so used to. All the way back in Jacob, he's going, my, my, my son's heir is going to rule. He's going to rule eternity, but it's going to be different. It's going to have donkeys. It's going to have wine. It's going to be about joy and celebration and peace. And then many other prophetic writers since then picked up on this idea and, and built on it. All the way to Zechariah. And so when Jesus chooses this day to fulfill this, this prophecy, he's choosing to... to to, to embrace this idea that kingdom leadership is not typical leadership. 
It's different. It's different. And this definitely seems to be one of the primary themes that Mark wants to point out, because in the previous chapter, just like a day earlier, they're walking to Jerusalem. They're on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. They're walking uh, in chapter 10, and, and a couple of the disciples ask, hey, can we, can we sit on your right and left hand? Can we be leaders in this new kingdom? Can we be kind of head, head guys in this new thing, this new movement you're starting, this thing you're doing? And Jesus, at first, it's almost kind of sarcastic. He's like, you seriously think you want to do this? He's like, you think you can drink from the cup I'm about to drink from? Like, he knows what's coming. They have no clue. He's like, you really want to do this? They're like, we do, we do. They're all excited. And a bunch of the other disciples are getting upset that these guys are asking to kind of be on top. You know, it's it's one of those things where they, they, uh, you know, the... When people, when you're choosing leaders, the one guy that really wants to do it is probably the one guy that shouldn't, you know. It's kind of like that, you know. It's, and so they're a little bit, they're a little bit upset. But here's what Jesus says about it while they're walking to Jerusalem. This is probably a day before um, today's passage. He says, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right and on my left. God prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called them together and said, you know what the rulers of this world, uh, you know that the rulers of this world lord it over people and officials flaunt their authority over those that are under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be the leader among you must be the servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave to everyone. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. So while walking toward Jerusalem, Knowing that everything um, is building toward this huge breaking point very, very soon. In fact, if you were here last week, you remember that, that a major like piece of the puzzle dropped into place last week for Jesus. And he was like, the time has come. Like all through John, it was like, but his time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. His time has not yet come. And then this piece falls in that we talked about last week. And, and Jesus is like, the time has come. He knows what's happening now. He knows the time has come. And while on this final walk... To wherever they're going, Jesus tells them that the kingdom leadership, like everything else in the kingdom, is upside down. And with that lesson still kind of ringing in their ears, Jesus, knowing this passage from Zechariah and this passage from Genesis, which is, which is really this huge stream of messianic understanding, chooses this day as the day to enter Jerusalem. And take a, a complete, and he takes a complete and active role in fulfilling that. This is, this doesn't happen to him. He decides, this is the day. Go, go get that donkey. Like he, and, and we find out, um, that, uh, that Jesus might have even taken a bigger role. Because here's an interesting tidbit. When Jesus sends the disciples of the town to get the donkey, he tells them, if anyone asks you what you're doing, just say to them, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. My Bible capitalizes that word Lord. There's no such thing in the Greek language. And so it's just the word Lord, which in big parts of the New Testament, the word Lord didn't necessarily mean Jesus. It just meant like the, the Lord of the house, the, the, the Lord of the, um, the vineyard or, or whatever. It just meant the owner, the boss. Um, in fact, uh, Peter even says that, um, that uh, Sarah called Abraham Lord. Wives would call their husbands Lord, which I've been trying to get established in my house, but it's not taking. Um, most scholars and translators and commentators believe Lord here didn't actually refer to Jesus. It referred to the owner of the donkey. 
that, that when they said the Lord has need of them, they just meant the donkey's owner has need of them. The Lord of the, the house has need of them, which probably means that Jesus had already made arrangements with the owner of the donkey. And, and most commentators believe the owner of the donkey is probably one of Jesus's um, followers, probably one of his loose followers. And Jesus had made arrangements with this guy to, to borrow his donkey. And, and so he told his disciples, just tell them the owner needs it um, and they'll let you borrow it. He'll bring it back soon. And so, uh, and, and whoever Lord is in this thing, it's pretty clear that Jesus um, is actively and very consciously fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah, which is kind of really significant as we go forward. So, before we really start to break this down, um, what exactly is going on here, uh, and possibly ruin Palm Sunday for some of you, I hope not, um, Let's look at some of the weirdness in this passage, because there's some stuff here that um, that bothers us, primarily how it ends. Um, so after all this big drama, right? Did I know something wrong? Was that me? Um, after this big drama and this huge parade and all these hosannas and this big buildup that we, that we always imagine, um, the passage reads like this at the very end. It says, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon, um, and he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Now, does that sound weirdly anticlimactic to anybody else? Like, it doesn't, um, it doesn't seem like the throngs of people and the shouting and the hosannas, doesn't it feel like they just kind of vanished? Like, you have this big procession, and it supposedly makes this huge wave, and then Jesus gets inside, and everybody's like, see ya, and he goes into the temple and looks around. Right? It feels like one of those big musical numbers where, like, Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast was like it starts slow, and then as it builds up, the champagne is popping, and everybody's singing, and blah, and all of a sudden it just goes, shoot, and it's Bell at the end of the table just clapping, you know. Or, or um, uh, what's the other one? Um, you, ain't, you ain't never had a friend like me from Aladdin? Like, like and at the end, it's just, eh, 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 and there's a, Right. Or I just can't wait to be king from Lion King. Or uh, I'm sure there's a hundred grown up ones that somebody that has not been having kids since the early 90s might be able to share. But um, but it seems to me like Mark's account is weirdly anticlimactic, doesn't it? It just seems empty, like there's this huge thing. And then Jesus kind of goes in the temple, checks it out and goes home, which is weird. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on. And unfortunately, um, this is going to mean changing the way some of us have looked um, at things, so hold on to your seats a little bit, and you can totally tell me I'm crazy and that you don't see it this way. I'm totally fine with that. You know how we do things here. You totally um, are allowed to disagree with me. I still love you. Um, so first, this is not a spontaneous outpouring of worship um, that kind of indicates everyone in Jerusalem recognized who Jesus was in this moment and considered him to be the Messiah. The Messiah. That's how we usually think of it. It's just kind of spontaneous. They see Jesus coming, and the whole town just kind of, you know worships him, right? That's kind of what we think. I don't think that's what's happening here. Uh, in fact, what the people um, chant as Jesus uh, enters was actually a well-known chiastic poem in Jerusalem in the day. 
Um, a chiastic poem is a poem built on a certain pattern structure uh, where lines one and four will relate, lines two and three will relate. A bunch of the psalms are actually built on chiastic poems. You ever notice how they seem to be repetitive sometimes when you read through them? Um, if you're not familiar with chiastic poetry and, and Jewish poetry, um, a lot of times that's because it's built to make a pattern as you read it. And, and it's, uh, so it's not like rhyming poetry, it's, it's structural poetry. Uh, and so chiastic poem um, builds where certain lines relate to each other. And the simplest form historians have found of this chiastic poem, they found scrolls with this chiastic poem written on it that predate Jesus um, and predate today's story. Uh, and they read like this. Hosanna, this is the, the simplest version they found. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. It's a chiastic poem that was very well known um, in this day. The rabbis considered uh, this a shortening um, of all of Psalms 118. They considered this to be the cliff notes of Psalm 118. If you wanted to, to just remember Psalms 118, you couldn't remember it because it's a long psalm. This was the, the rabbis said this was the cliff notes of Psalm 118. Hosanna, blesses he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blesses the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Uh, and this poem was often used as a greeting um, for special people when they would come into Jerusalem. So if there was a, an important rabbi coming, they would chant this um, psalm when they would come in. If a temple priest was entering, they would, they would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It was a greeting that they would often give. Um, and, uh, and in festival days, which we know this is coming into Passover, they would often, anytime someone would walk in, you would say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because everybody's coming to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord for festival. It was a pilgrimage festival. Everybody would come in. Um, and so, uh, in fact, it was also considered to be... Um, a, uh, a song of ascent. We talked about this a few weeks ago. These marching songs. Jer- Jer- uh, Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. It's the lowest city on the planet. 800 feet below sea level. It's only a few miles away from Jerusalem, which is 3,000 feet above sea level. So the walk from Jericho to Jerusalem is intense. And so as you're walking this hill... So almost straight up, they had these songs of ascent, these marching songs they would sing. Psalms 118 is considered a psalm of ascent. And as people would come dragging into Jerusalem, everybody would cheer them on. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay. Everybody getting uncomfortable? Like you're messing with Palm Sunday. Yeah. So unfortunately for those of us who grew up imagining crowds who saw Jesus coming on a donkey and they were overwhelmed by this messianic picture and just burst into spontaneous song. That's not exactly what's happening um, here. Now, um, though the chanted hosannas might not have been spontaneous, those, those, were, those predated um, Jesus. What about the palm branches? What about the laying their clothes on the road for him? Surely that is messianic. And the answer is yes, but also not Original historians believe, um, like the beginning of Psalms 118, uh, this kind of chiastic poem festival greeting, um, that this was this ritual was 200 years older. Um, I don't know if you guys, has anybody ever heard of the Maccabees? If you if you have like an old uh, like Catholic Bible, they put these books between the Old Testament and the New Testament that are not authoritative. They're not Bible. They're just history. And they didn't really know what to do with them. So they left them kind of in the middle. Um, but the Maccabees are one of those. And historians have written about the Maccabees uh, when um, 
uh, after about 400 years of being kind of a vassal state of Babylon and then Greek or Greece, um, Israel, uh, the Greek empire kind of fell apart. And this one Seleucia was the, uh, it kind of split into pieces and Seleucia was in charge of Israel. They got Israel. Well, um, they had this terrible ruler about 200 years before Jesus called Antiochus Epiphanes. Really fun name to say. I recommend you memorize it. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes was the, and he was a terrible ruler. He sacrificed, um, a pig on the altar of Jerusalem, which was a big no-no. Um, and he did some terrible things. And, and finally, this, uh, this, this priest, um, whose last name was, uh, Hasmonia, but, um, I forget what the dad's name was. He just, he killed this, uh, solution priest and, and ran. So the, his whole family runs from Jerusalem and they gather up an army and they come back and I mean, we're talking just a bunch of peons, um, and, uh, and led by the, his oldest son, Judas Maccabee. Maccabee is the, like, um, uh, uh, the, I forget the language, but the, it's the name for the hammer, which would be an awesome name, Judah the Hammer. Um, so if you need to come up with a nickname for me, I recommend, I recommend the hammer. Um, so Judah the Hammer. Um, and they come in and they take um, Israel back. And they, they chase off Antiochus Epiphanes and his entire army. And, um, and Israel is free for the first time in 400 years. And so when Judas Maccabee marches back into the city, the people lay out palm branches and lay out their clothes. And, and Judas, it's in Maccabees, um, 1 Maccabees 10, 2 Maccabees 9, both kind of record the same thing. And, and he marches, he comes back into the city as this kind of, messianic ruler in their vision. This is the guy who just freed us from our oppressors. And this is about 200 years before Jesus. And so by the time Jesus comes around, the Maccabees are George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. These are the the heroes from 200 years ago that freed us. Um, And so they kind of have this, this, uh, they're, they're the superheroes. They have this kind of iconic um, understanding. And a lot of um, the rabbis believe that this this chiastic poem kind of started around there. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's when people started doing it more regularly, was when Judas Maccabees freed the city. Hang with me. So, uh, in the first century, the Maccabees are the revolutionary patriots, the, the good guys from 200 years ago. And... Uh, and, and Judas Maccabee's triumphal entry looked a lot like Jesus's, which brings up an interesting nuance about Jesus's Palm Sunday entrance into the city. Mark says it this way. Then they, so the two disciples, brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and sat on it. And many spread their clothes in the road uh, and others cut down leafy branches and trees and spread them all over the road. Then those who went before... Jesus, as they're marching, cried out, uh, or those who went before and those who followed, cried out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of our Father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So who exactly is doing the shouting? Raise your hand if you're like me. You assumed it was most of the city, like it was a big crowd. Come on, you're just going to make me be the only one raising my hand? Okay, there we go. Yeah, uh, so... So we assumed it was the city. Well, the text says it was those in his company, the ones in four and behind, were chanting as they were walking into the city, blessed you comes in the name of the Lord. Mark makes it sound as though it's the people in the procession doing the chanting. 
Matthew, when he, he has this detail, when he tells this exact same story, he says the, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered saying, who is this? They want to know who all the chanting is about. Like, who, who are they singing about? And then they said, and the people answered, this is Jesus. So the city doesn't know who they're talking about. Having fun yet? Luke adds this little detail to his account. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd rebuked, uh, said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying these things. So the Pharisees hear this group of people chanting, bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're like, hey, quiet those guys down. You can't say those things. Okay. So picture with me this funny little procession of maybe 120 people. We know Jesus had a fairly close following of 120 people that followed him about everywhere. About 120 people maybe a bit more, of his closest followers, with Jesus on a, on a silly little donkey in the middle. A young donkey with some of the people laying out a carpet of branches and garments and that kind of made everybody think about the Maccabees, all chanting this ancient and meaningful poem, entering this big city full of people who are basically craning their necks to figure out what this procession is about. What's all the drama and I think we're probably getting closer to what the, what the disciples, what the gospel writers were describing. Now, why am I messing with Palm Sunday? There's got to be a reason, right? You know, just disassemble all this for no reason. And even more importantly, if this is at best a celebratory moment among the people who already know and love Jesus, or at worst, this kind of contrived moment that Jesus picks to fulfill these Old Testament prophecies, then why did all four gospel writers feel the need to record it and tell us this story as though it's a really important story? That's what we're going to try to answer. Now listen to this account. Gates open and the procession begins. Thousands line the street, throwing flowers and laurels, waving madly, reaching to touch power as it passes. Security guards watch the crowd for dissonance, agitators, and zealots, intent on doing harm. The man coming through the gate sits tall in his horse's saddle, looking every bit the champion he is, he is meant to be. A mantle of authority rests easily on his shoulders as he climbs higher and higher to the center of the city, taking his rightful place as Lord Protector of these people. This is an account of the entry of Pontius Pilate into Jerusalem the first day of Passover week. Uh, being uh, a deeply Jewish, uh, which means patriotic celebration, Pilate was expected to be in Jerusalem for every Passover feast because Rome, who was in control of Jerusalem, knew that, that these, you know, they controlled a lot of different little vassal states that all had different religions. And they knew these religious festivals were huge moments for uprising and, uh, and revolution. And so they always made sure to have a presence there just to see that nothing got out of control, that it didn't reach some revolutionary pitch um, and historians have found several scrolls with accounts like this one that describe the entrance of Pilate into the city. And this fits scripture because we know for, for Jesus, uh, Pilate's home was in Caesarea. It wasn't in Jerusalem. He lived in Caesarea. But we know from the 
Scripture accounts that he was in Jerusalem for Jesus' trial. And so it makes sense that he was there. And so we know that there had to be some kind of way he got into Jerusalem. And and historians have found scrolls that describe his entrance as this huge procession of, of rulership. This also begs the question, if the Romans were naturally suspicious of Passover, which we know historically they were, um, and, and they, they feared Passover's kind of revolutionary potential, then why do they not intervene on Palm Sunday as Jesus comes riding into the city as the king? It's always kind of bothered me. Why, are, why is Rome okay with Jesus entering the city the way he does? And I think this all rolls together to form a single conclusion. And I know that I've thrown a lot of stuff at you, so please hang with me just a second longer. We can't know for sure that this happened on the same day that Pilate wrote in. Um, But we do know Pilate generally, or the Roman governor, because it actually extended beyond Pilate, that the Roman governor wrote in on the first day of Passover. And we also know, church history tells us, Jesus wrote into the city on the first day of Passover. So what if Jesus made arrangements to procure a donkey and intentionally had his followers enact this very specific procession ritual, even though they look small and silly enough to make people ask, who is this? What are you doing? What is going on here? Just to create an intentional juxtaposition between his entry and Pilate's entry. Or maybe even his entry and Judas Maccabee's entry. We've always assumed that Jesus rode into the city and all of Jerusalem froze for this strange moment one week before they were going to call for his crucifixion. But for, for this one moment, what if, it was, what if it was different? What if instead Jesus was demonstrating what he had just told his disciples one day ago? On their walk to Jerusalem. What, what if... What he's saying is kingdom leadership looks different. Kingdom leadership's not going to look like Pilate. It's not going to be a leader sitting high on a horse and bodyguards standing around him. What if what's happening here is this little band of Jesus followers, ordinary people ushering in the Son of God, the King of the universe, who's sitting humbly, almost defenseless, representing love and joy and peace, while the real masses are lining the streets for Pilate, who sits high on horseback, surrounded by bodyguards, representing power and leverage and wealth. Jesus just created a juxtaposition for his disciples one day ago about what world's rulers and their kind of business looks like and how things are done in the upside-down kingdom. It's different. It looks different. And here he is riding into the city in which he is rightfully the king. And all he has for transportation is a donkey. And all he has for worshiping throngs is his few faithful friends. And all he has for music are these ancient metaphors of wine and peace and joy. What does it mean if Jesus was intentionally sipping in, slipping into the city in Pilate's shadow? I think it would make the last verse make more sense where Jesus then just kind of wanders into the temple quietly, looks around, and goes home. 
It makes more sense of the verses in Matthew and Luke that seem to contradict the idea of the whole city worshiping Jesus. And most of all, it feels to me like Palm Sunday right here in Wellsville, Kansas. Because here's the deal. Look at the world today. Look at the big dramas. Look at the the way things work and the absolute passion and, dare I say, worship that goes on around celebrity and politics. How small does the church generally feel in the midst of that? How insignificant does the church seem amongst these tidal pools of power and influence and leverage and wealth? How silly do we seem singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If I'm honest, I feel more at home imagining Jesus' faithful followers worshiping him and shouting Hosanna and looking like lunatics in the eyes of the wider city, yet knowing that they are ushering in the very Messiah, than I do trying to come to grips with this city that's altogether worshiping Jesus when they're going to call for his blood in about six days. I think this is us. A small group of followers clustered together in the refuge of Jesus' presence, surrounded by a sea of every type of pressure and pull in every wrong answer. And we're, we're huddled in the midst of it singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I feel like I understand that Palm Sunday. Because it feels like this Palm Sunday. The whole world is losing its mind, worshiping Pilate. And there's this little bunch of people singing Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I get that. And oftentimes the world's going to say, who is this? What are you doing? What are you talking about? We don't even understand what's going on in there. That's the Jesus story I'm used to. So how do we respond to that? We talked last week about the upside down kingdom and and I invited you to die. To let your desire to be the center of your own story die. This week's not much different. If, If anything, I'm trying to drive home that we are part of a weird and freaky upside down kingdom. Our military warrior king, our superhero, won the battle by surrendering and allowing himself to be tortured and killed. Everything is upside down. And the way that Jesus talked about leadership was to serve. He pointed out that this isn't the way the world does it. In the world, the servant serves the leader. Jesus says, nope, not here. In this kingdom, if you want to be on top, go to the bottom. You know what I figured out for the first time while writing this message? My kingdom definition, I've never really been a follower. I took all the punishment that Andy never got. I turned myself in and took the punishment while Cortez walked away for throwing that mud ball. I paid for the damages on that card. It cost nobody else a penny. And believe me, these were not altruisms. My, my dad made me do it. I was not a good person. I was not inherently the type of person that was ever going to do this. But this is kingdom leadership. 
Only in this kingdom, maybe you don't light the field on fire. Maybe you don't throw the mud ball. Maybe you don't break the car. So here's how I would love to respond to this message. Three things. First, please, as you come to the table today, as we gather around the table, do a heart search. Take a minute and ask yourself, are you living in the upside-down kingdom? Is serving others at the top of your authoritative task list? You actively seek ways to serve your spouse, to serve your kids. Please don't tell my kids I preach that. To do, do you seek ways to serve your coworkers and your neighbors and, and even people you don't like? Jesus stated it very clearly. But among you it will be different, upside down. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve, to be served, but to serve others, and to give his life a ransom for many. The way to the top is down. So let's play King of the Hill. Let's in the upside down kingdom. Let's make a competition out of it and see who can get to the top first by serving. My, maybe the greatest leader I've ever known was a man named George Manning. That's George. Uh, he was a janitor and was maybe the hardest working man um, I've ever known. George's brother-in-law, Tim, that's Tim, came back from Vietnam, a quadriplegic. Um, and from the day uh, Tim got home, George took care of him. Uh, every morning, George would get up at 4.30 in the morning and he would... To start getting Tim ready, um, and George was not a big man. He was like, what, five seven, five eight? Not a big guy. And he would yank Tim's big six foot four inch frame out of bed, and he would bathe him and dress him, get him into his wheelchair um, before George would go to work. And every night he would reverse the process and undo it. He did this for over 35 years, every single day. Tim was able to have a life, and he learned to drive, which was terrifying. I mean, real spooky. I rode with him many times. and He was able to start a business, get get a job, and eventually start a business. He moved down to Branson and had a courier business. He had a driving business. Back before 65 was built up real big between Branson and Springfield, and he would would pick up business in Branson from all the show people, and he'd drive up to Springfield and make deposits, and he just couriered back and forth between Springfield and Branson. Had a business for many years. He met Tony Orlando in Branson, and the two of them took this little veterans parade that was in Branson every year and turned it into um, this veterans uh, reunion weekend that happens every year now that draws in thousands and thousands and thousands of veterans from all over the world. This homecoming weekend is now considered one of the top two or three veterans events in the nation. Tim and Tony started that. And through every single day of Tim's rich and full life, where he had a real impact on the nation and created a legacy of healing and community um, for, for in veteran memorial circles, was George Manning. Got real close. Getting Tim up and bathed and dressed every morning and reversing the process every night. I swear on my soul, I've never once heard George speak a word of complaint. I've never heard anybody 
who did. And over the years, I watched CEOs and people with doctorates and the smartest people I've known come to George for advice. And they would ask George for things. And, and no one ever questioned his motives because you knew all George did was serve. And he had this gentle wisdom that was truly unique. He was a true kingdom leader. I hope we can search our hearts. Are we leading in the upside-down kingdom? The second way I would love to respond to this message um, is for you to come to Monday Thursday uh, this week. I promise it will be an amazing experience. We're going to be talking about kingdom service and leadership, and you need to be there. Um, and third, and probably most important way that I would love for you to respond to this message and maybe the reason I offer um, this different look at the way Palm Sunday happened, the reason I spent so much time in history this week uncovering this, is because so it's easy to hang on the fringes. It's easy to, to be in the crowd wondering what is going on, who is that. And we allow that here. We love when people come with doubt and questions and, and we in no way make people, you know, adhere. But every once in a while, the scripture um, offers us choices. Palm Sunday seems to be one of those. Do we want to be those who are around the donkey singing Hosanna or those in, in the crowd asking who is this? And though I'm not trying to threaten you with anything or leverage anything, man, I, am, I invite you to sing with us. Shout with us. Wave palm branches with us. March with us. Serve with us. We're a small company, but we're led by a truly powerful leader. We're a goofy, overlooked bunch of misfits, but we proclaim the true king. Every once in a while, the Bible offers us two sides. Two teams, two kingdoms, as if God is saying, hey, you, which side are you on? Don't stand in the crowd today. Palm Sunday. Don't stand there saying, who is this? Join the procession. Jump in with us. Be one of the, the party who are ushering in the king. Shout, Hosanna. Hosanna.